Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. If you're new or visiting um, at Midtown Baptist, we make it our practice to start at the beginning of books and then just preach through uh, start to finish until the end. So we're in the middle of a series in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 to 20. And I'll ask that you follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked Him, What then shall we do? And He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to Him, Teacher, what shall we do? And He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked Him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we seek God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask You now that You would help us to hear the Word of God with ears of faith, that You would make our hearts soft and our minds ready to believe and to respond to what it is that You have revealed in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that You would Please help us to hold fast to the truth. Please keep me, Father, from error. And please grant all of us discernment that we might hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Help us, Father, not to take for granted any moment we have to be reminded from Your Word of the truth of Christ. And help us not to take for granted any moment in which the Holy Spirit works faith to believe that good news. We ask for Your help now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we were to sum up our passage this morning in one word, perhaps the best choice would be the word preparation. Preparation. The infancy narrative, as it's called in Luke's Gospel, is finished. And now Luke begins to prepare us for Jesus' earthly ministry. So from chapter 3, verse 1, until chapter 4, verse 13, Luke describes a number of events that set things in order for Jesus to be about His ministry. If you look there in your Bibles, you can see this. Jesus is baptized, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Jesus' genealogy is recorded, chapter 3, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And then Jesus is faithful in the face of temptation, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. All of that happens, friends, before Jesus' ministry. And all of that is about preparation. It's about preparing the way, paving the way for Jesus' ministry to begin in full. But since the theme is clearly preparation, it should be no surprise to you that this new section begins not with baptism or genealogy or temptation. This new section begins with John. John the Baptist. You'll remember back in chapter 1 that the angel Gabriel said John would go before the Lord to prepare the way. That is John the Baptist's ministry. He is the forerunner. And therefore, it should be no surprise to us that this new section in Luke's Gospel that's focused on preparation, this new section begins with John the Baptist. Now, of course, the question then becomes, how does John prepare the way? How does John fulfill his ministry as the forerunner? Well, to answer that question, friends, I'd like us to consider John's ministry as it's presented here in John three from, in Luke 3 from four different perspectives. Four different perspectives on, on John's ministry. Each one corresponds to a major section of the passage and each one helps us see how John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ. So first of all, we're going to see the prophet's call in verses 1-6. to six. Then we're going to look at the prophet's message in verses 7-14. to 14. Third, we'll notice the prophet's humility in verses 15-18. to 18. And finally, we'll end with the prophet's faithfulness in verses 19-20. to 20. So, four perspectives on John's ministry that I pray will prepare us and point us to the Lord Jesus. Let's begin, first of all, in verses 1-6 to 6 with the prophet's call. The prophet's call. Much like he did in chapter 2, Luke sets these events in the context of world history. Notice there in verse 1 how Luke lists seven different rulers in verses 1 and 2, moving from the global down to the local. He begins with Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, and then he works down the chain of command, so to speak, in the empire before he ends with the Jewish authorities, Annas and Caiaphas. So from Caesar down to the Jewish high priest. Now, if you know the rest of Jesus' life, then you'll recognize that these men are responsible, humanly speaking, for Jesus' death. Annas and Caiaphas will preside over Jesus' trial where He's unjustly condemned as a lawbreaker. 
And Herod and Pontius Pilate will go back and forth until one of them decides, Pilate finally decides, that Jesus deserves to die. So in terms of world affairs, think about this, in terms of world affairs, these are the men whose words have the power to shape the course of history. They're responsible, humanly speaking, for Jesus' death. But then notice what Luke says at the end of verse 2. In this context of global power, God speaks, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Friends, that's a significant statement for a number of reasons. For one, verse 2 reminds us that it is the Word of God that has the ultimate power over the affairs of history. It's not Herod or Caesar. It's not Pilate or Caiaphas who will determine the course of Jesus' life. It is God's Word. You see, from the beginning, even during this time of preparation, Luke is reminding us that everything that will happen to Jesus happens according to the powerful Word of God. But verse 2 is also significant for what it tells us about John the Baptist. Understand that at this point in Israel's history, God has not spoken to His people in over 400 years. Malachi was the last prophet God sent to Israel. And his ministry ended centuries ago. So for 400 years, God has been silent. Think about that. No prophetic revelation. No new insight from the Lord. No further confirmation of God's promises. Nothing. Just silence. 400 years. Nothing. But here in verse 2, that silence is broken as the Word of God, Luke tells us, comes to John. Friends, that's exactly how God called His prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah 38, verse 4, the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Or Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11, the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Or Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1, the Word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and on and on we could go. The point is that John's call fits precisely with the Old Testament prophets of God. And that's what John is. He is a prophet of the one true and living God. And John's ministry signifies that God is now speaking again to His people. That the silence is over and God's Word is calling out to them. And that also helps us understand John's primary task. John's primary task is to proclaim that Word. He's not only called to be a prophet by God's Word, he's now called to proclaim God's Word to the people. Notice verse 3, where Luke gives us a brief summary of John's preaching. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, the key insight in verse 3 is not so much about baptism as it is the connection between repentance and forgiveness. This is essential for seeing how John prepares the way for Christ. You can think of repentance as a twofold reality. Repentance is both confession and action. Repentance begins with the confession that I have sinned against God and that I stand in need of God's mercy. But repentance then takes action to turn away from that sin, now confessed, and to seek to follow God in renewed faith and obedience. And that's what John's baptism symbolizes. There's nothing... There's nothing magical about John's baptism. It's a a symbolizing of this repentance, this confession 
and then action to turn from sin. It's a declaration of repentance, which is itself a confession of our need for God. And that, friends, is why repentance and forgiveness go together. It's why repentance and forgiveness go together. This this is significant that we not miss. It's not that baptism forgave anyone. No external religious rite can purchase forgiveness. So no one was forgiven because John dunked them in the water. Instead, John's baptism of repentance expressed a person's need for forgiveness. And even more importantly, their need for God. So think about it. When they come out to the wilderness and they say to John, I want to be baptized, that's a declaration of, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. I need God's mercy. It's a a confession of their need. You can't be forgiven until you recognize your need. I mean, think about it. If I don't believe that I have sinned, then why would I ever seek forgiveness for my sin? If I don't believe that I've sinned, why would I ever seek forgiveness? So repentance then, repentance then is this first step because it calls people to acknowledge the truth about themselves. That they need to be forgiven before God. Even still, how does this baptism of repentance prepare the way for Jesus? How does going out into the wilderness and acknowledging a need through baptism, how does that prepare the way for the Messiah? Well, notice where Luke goes in verses 4 to 6. He goes to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, actually. And Luke shows us how John's prophetic ministry was unlike any of the other Old Testament prophets. John, in other words, had a unique calling. Look again at verses 4 to 6 and listen for how Isaiah's words match up with John's ministry. Verse 4 As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to the day when God would raise up another prophet. That's the voice in the wilderness. It's another prophet. And this new prophet would prepare the way for God to come. He would remove the obstacles. That's the, that's the point of the language about valleys and mountains being leveled out. Getting rid of all the obstacles so that there's a smooth highway for the Lord to come. For the Lord to arrive. But notice then what's revealed when the Lord does come. Verse 6, all flesh, that is all kinds of people, would see what? They would see the salvation of God. They would see the salvation of God. That's the key, friends. The voice crying in the wilderness, calls people to repent because God is coming. And He's coming to save. Now, you can make the connection with John's ministry. John is the voice crying in the wilderness. That's what Luke has been trying to get us to see. John is that new prophet, which means his preaching of repentance prepares the people to see that the Savior is soon to come. That's how it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It convicts people of their need, and then seeing their need, they're ready to see the Savior. They're ready to receive the Messiah. John's baptism of repentance prepared people to see where the forgiveness is found. Not in John, but in the One who comes after John. The Lord Jesus. 
And so I just want to pause here for a second as we're talking about this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Excuse me. I want to pause here and remind you because I think this is easy for people to misunderstand when they think about John the Baptist. I want to remind you that there is no religious action you can ever do that would earn God's forgiveness. We're going to talk about repentance in more detail here in just a minute. And I'm, I'm probably going to say something that's going to step on somebody's toes as I'm talking about repentance. But before we get to those specifics, I want to be very clear. There is no religious action you can do that will earn forgiveness. Baptism can't forgive your sins. Fasting can't forgive your sins. Going to church can't forgive your sins. You could offer the best repentance that any person has ever offered in the history of the world, and that repentance would not get you one millimeter closer to God. Not at all. Forgiveness is only found in the one who comes after John, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's why John called people to repent in the first place. Not because he was forgiving them, but because he wanted them to see their need for a Savior. So that when Jesus did come, John could say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And people would say, I believe. And they would see. That's why John called people to repent. Not to earn forgiveness, but rather as the first step in recognizing that forgiveness is found only in the Savior whom God has provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save you, The good news the Bible is telling you is not do repentance in order to become a Christian. The good news the Bible is telling you is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and be saved by His blood. That's the good news. So that's the prophet's message. It's a call to God's people to repent. Let's look at the second aspect of John's ministry. uh, the The prophet's message. We just saw the prophet's calling. Let's look at the prophet's message now here for a moment. The prophet's message. We just noted how John came on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance. And his message in verses 7-9 to shows us more clearly what true repentance requires. There's a few points that we need to note here about true repentance. First of all, true repentance requires action. Look at verse 7, where John confronts the crowd that is coming out to hear him. Verse 7, You brood of vipers... John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I don't like snakes, and I don't ever like to think about snakes, but I want you to think about snakes for a minute from the Bible's perspective. Biblically speaking, if you call somebody a snake, where does your mind go? To the Garden of Eden, right? To the serpent, whispering his deceitful lies to Adam and Eve. And that's John's point here in verse 7 when he calls these people a brood of vipers. He's identifying them with the evil one. They're not acting like children of God, but children of the devil. Why? Why does John come on so strong? Why does he say this? Well, notice where he goes in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Friends, that language of bearing fruit is significant. Why were they acting like the evil one? Because they were just going through the motions and not actually turning from sin. Some people in the crowd 
apparently weren't really repent they weren't really repentant. They just wanted to escape the bad stuff by getting dunked in water. And John says, that's not true repentance. That's not actually responding to God. You, you, sure, you see there's a problem and you you act like you're fleeing, but in your in reality, you're just you're just going through the motions, John says. You see, he's railing against this heartless ritual that never bears fruit in action. It is not a mark of godliness to just go through religious motions. It's a mark of the devil, John says. Now, at this point, we have to remember that John the Baptist is a transitional figure in redemptive history. There was no one really like John before, and there's nobody really like John since. He's a transitional figure. He's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the specific situation that John is addressing in verse 8 is not exactly the same as my life and your life today. But, but the principle is the same. The principle that John preaches in verse 8 is the same. And that principle is this, friends. True repentance requires action. It requires action. It's not enough to simply go through the motions. We must take action to turn from sin, put it away, and grow in a renewed commitment to God. And so I'll I'll just ask you, is that true of your life this morning, friends? If you're trusting in Christ today, are you seeking by God's grace to demonstrate repentance in action? Maybe it's seeking to change how you speak to your children or to a fellow church member. Maybe it's resolving to not pass on gossip or to not put before your eyes any worthless thing. Maybe it's committing again today to not love money, but instead to give generously to the Lord and to other people. Whatever the area, are our lives marked by a repentance that bears fruit not just in words, that's devilish. Not just in words, but in action. True repentance requires action. Along with action, the prophet's message also shows us that true repentance is humble before God. True repentance is humble before God. In the rest of verse 8, John anticipates an objection. Remember, John is preaching to Jews at this point, people who pride themselves on being the descendants of Abraham. But notice how John anticipates their pride. Verse 8, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So here, John warns the crowd not to trust in their genealogy. Some Jewish people apparently believed that their connection with Abraham just automatically spared them from God's wrath. And it made them immune from their need to repent. Why should we repent? We already belong to Abraham. We already have all of the promises. God's not going to judge us. We have Abraham as our father. You can hear that objection pretty easily. And it's an objection that was was fundamentally rooted in pride. In pride. But John destroys that objection. And he does so by pointing them to the sovereign power of God. You see it there in the rest of verse 8. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. When it comes to raising up heirs for Abraham, God is not bound by genealogy. God can raise up children of the promise from stones if He has to. God can take what is dead and lifeless and through His sovereign grace, He can grant life and then bring that newly raised person into His family. 
It's actually a striking picture of conversion in verse 8, if you think about it. God raising the dead to life by His grace. He's not dependent on anything but His own power. You see, membership in God's family is not about physical heritage. It's about God's grace that calls people to Himself. And that is the crowd's deadly error at this point. They're trusting in themselves, not in God. And therefore, they're in danger. Notice the striking image in verse 9 where John speaks of an axe ready to cut down unfruitful trees. Friends, that's a warning of judgment. Judgment is near, John says. So don't trust in your pride. The blood of Abraham cannot save you from the judgment of God. Instead, what the crowd must do is humble themselves before God in repentance. Again, the situation facing us today is is not exactly the same as what John is preaching against. Probably none of us in here today are physical descendants of Abraham who can boast in our genealogy. But there is still a warning here for us And that warning has to do with spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. How easy it is to think that some aspect of our Christian upbringing or our Christian heritage absolves us of repentance. How subtly we can come to believe that our status before God rests on our religiosity. And then how quickly we can assume that repentance doesn't apply to us. Look, I mean, I'll be honest. Whenever I hear people talk about repentance... If I'm not careful, my first instinct is like, yeah, all those wicked people out in the world, they need to repent. But not me. I do right things. I'm already clean. It's easy to be spiritually prideful and to believe that the call to repentance is is beyond us. I'm above all that, God. And when we respond that way, we're being exactly like the crowd here in verse 8. We're pridefully trusting in ourselves and not in God. And for that reason, friends, we need to pay attention to John's warning. And we need to remember that the entirety of our life is to be marked by repentance. We're never done repenting before God. We're never finished with this willingness to confess where we have gone astray and then seeking by His grace to pursue obedience and holiness before Him. We should beware of spiritual pride. Ask yourself today, friends, Ask God to expose where your heart has been boastfully confident in your own religiosity. And ask Him to help you to see where you need to repent. So the prophet's message has emphasized action and humility as necessary for true repentance. There's one more aspect we should see. True repentance puts away self-oriented living. Puts away self-oriented living. You'll notice in verse 10, that the crowd responds to John's preaching. What then shall we do? They ask. That's God's mercy, friends, that they listened. It's God's mercy. They ask what they should do. But it's not just the crowd. It's also tax collectors and soldiers. In fact, in verses 10-14, to John addresses three different groups of people, giving each group specific instructions on repentance. Now, we don't know who all made up the crowd at this point but we do know that tax collectors and soldiers were despised in the first century. People viewed tax collectors and soldiers as sellouts. They were traitors to the hated Romans. And therefore, everyday Jews in the first century hated tax collectors and soldiers. And yet, 
God's Word is preached to the, to the despised as well as to the crowd. Did you notice that? No one, it seems, is beyond the reach of God's mercy. No one is beyond repentance, we might even say. So notice John's instructions to these groups. What should they do? Well, the crowd should share their possessions with those in need. Tax collectors shouldn't charge more and keep the extra for themselves. And soldiers shouldn't use their authority to extort people or to threaten them. Now, there's a lot that we could say about those specific instructions, but is there a common thread that ties all of them together? Yes, there is. And that common thread is this call to put away self-oriented living. It's called to put away self-oriented living. Instead of loving yourself, John says, you must love God by demonstrating love for your neighbor. You see the connection? Instead of a self-oriented life, John is calling these people to a God-oriented life that is evidenced in love for others. And if you think about the Old Testament, this makes perfect sense. What's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. John's point is that the two commandments actually go together. How do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength? By loving your neighbor as yourself. By putting away a self-oriented life in order to pursue a God-oriented life that's demonstrated in tangible love for those around you. Friends, I take this to be the foundational fruit of a repentant life. Am I using the advantages and the position that I have to serve myself, or am I using such things to serve God by loving those around me? Do I view my gifts and my circumstances as primarily about me, or do I view them as God-given means to serve others for His glory? Friends, a repentant life, if there's one mark of a repentant life, it's this, that you're consistently turning away from self and turning towards God in care for others. None of us will ever do that perfectly, but is the overall picture of my life and yours one of love for God manifested in love for others? Action, humble before God, turning away from self-love. Those are the features of true repentance and the The preaching of true repentance is what marked the prophet's message. Let's look at the third perspective on John's ministry. This time in verses 15 to 18, the prophet's humility. The prophet's humility. The crowd senses the significance of the moment and they begin to ask questions about John's identity. Notice verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So the crowd knows that something is brewing, but they're not exactly sure what it all means, and so they begin to wonder, could John be the Christ? Could John be the Messiah? Now, think about how John could spin this moment if he wanted to. I mean, just think, think about this from John the Baptist's perspective. He could really make a name for himself at this point, couldn't he? I mean, if he could capitalize on the momentum of the crowd, there is no telling what kind of ministry John could build for himself. I mean, he could really spin this to his advantage. But that's not what John does. With clarity and with humility, John points the crowd away from himself and to the one who is to come. In fact, notice how thoroughly John champions Jesus' superiority. 
First of all, John points to Jesus' superior status. Notice verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptized you with water, but He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You'll notice that John doesn't use Jesus' name. He just refers to Him as the one who is mightier than I. The idea, friends, is to be anointed with power. John has clearly been anointed by God, but his point is that the one coming after him will have a greater anointing. He'll have even more power than John. John, Jesus has a superior status. And then to make this point even clearer, notice how John describes himself as a servant. He says he's not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who is coming. In the Judaism of John's day, untying sandals was about the lowest job you could have. Even Jewish servants were not required to do such a menial job. And yet John says even this menial task would be too great for him. You see, it's just a striking picture of Jesus' superior status. However significant John is, Jesus is that much greater. John then goes goes on in verse 16 to highlight Jesus' superior status. Ministry. Listen for the contrast that John lays out in verse 16. I baptize you with water, John says, but he who is mightier will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus has a superior ministry because he has a superior baptism. Now, what does it mean that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, I don't know about the fire. I'm still trying to figure that out. There's like three different options, and I'm not sure which one is right. So you can find me at lunch, and we can go through them together. So I don't know about the fire part. But what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, if you think back to the Old Testament, then you'll remember how God promised that in the last days, He would pour out His Spirit on all people so that there would be no distinction. He'd pour out His Spirit on all of His people. All of God's people would have the Holy Spirit And then therefore all would know God and all would be equipped for service. And this promise of the Holy Spirit given to all of God's people, that was the central hope of the new covenant. So, when John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, his point is that Jesus' ministry will fulfill those new covenant hopes. Jesus' ministry will bring about that promised reign of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people of God. And if we were to peek ahead to Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, this is precisely what we would find occurring as the church is established. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant in His blood at the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends again to heaven. And then from heaven's throne, what does Jesus do there in Acts chapter 2? He pours out His Spirit on the church, beginning at Pentecost and then spreading out to the ends of the earth in the preaching of the Gospel. And that's why Jesus has a superior ministry because He inaugurates the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian this morning, if you, if you belong to Christ, this is arguably the greatest blessing that God has given to you in His covenant love. His own Spirit dwelling inside of you. And it flows from the hand of Christ. Let's not miss this. To have the Spirit is to belong to Jesus for He gives the Spirit to all who trust in Him. It's Jesus' superior ministry to pour out the Spirit of God. So, superior status, superior ministry. There's one more piece to John's humility. Verse 17, Jesus has superior authority. 
verse 17, is actually a picture of judgment. Listen again. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You'll sometimes hear people say that they don't like reading the Apostle Paul's letters because he talks about judgment too much. Instead, they just like reading about Jesus because Jesus doesn't have as many connections with the judgment of God. Friends, that's just not true. Verse 17 here is a picture of judgment and Jesus is the one doing the judging. He has, he's the one that has the winnowing fork. The chaff are the wicked who deny Christ while the wheat are those who trust in His name. What happens to the chaff? They are condemned in the fire of God's judgment. But notice who is separating the wheat and the chaff. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. This is why the church has confessed from the beginning that Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. So notice the difference between John and Jesus. John could warn people about the judgment of God. Jesus will execute the judgment of God. He has a superior authority. Overall then, these verses show us how clearly John puts himself beneath the one who is to come. But what's, I think, most amazing to me is that John has no problem doing this. Did you notice that? John doesn't grumble. He doesn't posture. Even later when John's disciples begin to follow Jesus, John doesn't complain. Why? Because John recognizes that in the presence of glory, the only right response is humility. And look, friends, that's the takeaway. Everybody wants to have a Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life. And among all the people in history, we could, we could say that nobody had a more Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life, perhaps, humanly speaking, than John the Baptist. And yet, what did he use his Spirit-empowered life to do? Make much of Jesus. Do you want to live a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled life? Make much of Jesus. This is always a consistent mark of the Holy Spirit's work. Jesus increases and everybody else decreases, to use John's words. May that be true of us. So we looked at the prophet's calling, the prophet's message, the prophet's humility. We're going to finish up with a final aspect of John's ministry. Verses 19 to 20, the prophet's faithfulness. The prophet's faithfulness. After a brief summary in verse 18, Luke closes the passage with a description of what happened to John. What happened to this significant prophet? Well, notice what he says, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod, as you can guess, is a powerful man. But Herod is also a wicked man. Herod is in need of repentance, in other words. But who in the world is going to have the courage to tell Herod to repent? Well, apparently John does. And he confronts the powerful but wicked king. And the point, friends, is that John was faithful. That's the point that Luke's trying to make. John was faithful. He didn't change his message. He didn't water it down. It didn't matter if John was preaching to the crowds in the wilderness or to Herod in the palace. No matter the situation, John was faithful to the Word of God. And for that faithfulness, John was put in prison. I want you to catch that, friends. John was faithful 
and therefore he went to prison. He was faithful and he went to prison. His faithfulness, in other words, did not mean his ministry was easy. And it did not mean that people liked him. In fact, it was just the opposite. John's faithfulness was costly, even to the point of costing John his life, as we'll see later. He never gets out of prison. Herod beheads him. And yet, John stood firm. John kept preaching. John was faithful. John didn't waver. And so the question that just jumps off the Bible to me as I read through this is how in the world was John able to do this? How was he able to stand firm even at great cost? How was he able to be faithful to God even though he knew it was going to cost him everything? How do you do that? Well, the answer, friends, is all the way back in verse 2. It's all the way back in verse 2, and it ties this whole passage together. Verse 2, the Word of God came to John. The Word of God came to John. Seven mighty rulers seemingly directing the affairs of history. Seven men of power who will play a part in Jesus' death. But in the midst of that global context, God's Word comes to John. And that's the reason for John's faithfulness. That's the reason John stands firm. He was called by God's Word. He was shaped by God's Word. And he was confident that God's Word would prove true no matter the circumstances. And so with the confidence that comes from knowing the Word of God, John could stand in the face of a wicked person like Herod and say, repent, you vile, wicked sinner. And he could call Herod to repentance. Not because John was so confident in himself, but because he stood firm on God's Word to the end. Who knows what our day in history holds for us, friends? Who knows how the affairs of this world will turn out? There may be another Herod-like ruler who rises in wickedness and seeks to stop the preaching of God's Word. And if that day comes, faithfulness will be needed. And if that day comes, it will be God's Word that enables us to stand firm. And, and so, I'm, I'm going to close with the encouragement that I so often give to us because it's the encouragement that God's people need in every age, and perhaps we could say on every day. Build your life on the powerful Word of God. Build your life on the powerful Word of God, and as you do, remember that no matter the circumstance, God's Word will uphold you to the end. He upheld the prophets of old like John the Baptist. He will uphold us as well until the day that Christ returns. Amen? Let's pray.